0: Hey, good morning, Missio. We're reading in Luke chapter 2 today, starting in verse 36 and going all the way to verse 38. Let's get into it. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Jonathan, did you film that in an airport or a bus station? (laughs) Uh, Welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Before we get into the text, just a few things to get on your radar. This coming week is... The final week of Advent, so we have a bunch of like Christmas Eve things going on and um, Christmas Eve kits or Christmas dinner kits. So first, on Thursday, we're going to do three Christmas Eve services in order to make room for as many people that want to come, but it's still kind of like limited capacity, limited seating, registered only events. So if you would like to come to one of those, there is a three a five and a seven o'clock Christmas Eve service. You can register the same way that you registered for this event online. There's like a million emails that have gone out that you've probably already subscribed from that you can use to register for Christmas Eve. And then, additionally, uh, an amazing group of people here who are like our hosting team, led by Haley, who's in the back, um, who will just be so mad at me for doing all of this, uh, put together a... Dinner, Christmas Eve dinner package um, that includes like a, a guide with recipes and prayers, um, ways to host like, a meal and a celebration in your own home. And the reason that we put that together is because we don't get to do Christmas Eve the same way that we normally would. Normally we would do like an open house, we'd have this room full of people and it would be a large party to celebrate the advent of Jesus. And so instead of that, we're using the opportunity to curate spaces of worship in our own home with your household or your like friend group or whoever you live with as you want to curate kind of a Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Christmas Week kind of dinner celebration in there. So there's still, I think, Haley, is there still time to register? Up until tomorrow. Up until tomorrow. So you can register for a Christmas kit up until tomorrow. It has a beautiful guide that they put together, table decorations, flower arrangements, and everything that you would need to buy for the meal that they put together, or you could do your own meal and use the guide that they put together, kind of however you want to do it. So all of that's available on the site, Christmas Eve services, Christmas kits. And then finally, there will be no in-person worship service on the 27th. It's like just the weekend following So Christmas, we'll do a live stream, but we won't do an in-person worship gathering here. So, you know, don't show up at the building. All right, let's pray, and then we will dive in. Jesus, thank you that you are with us. I've offered that prayer pretty much every day during the season of Advent. Because I'm both thankful that you are with us as the story of Advent tells, but I'm thankful that you are with us in the story of Pentecost, and you are with us moving the world towards your second Advent. This is such a strange moment to live in. It's a strange moment to live in the story of Advent, but it's also a strange moment to live in the middle of COVID, in the middle of so much waiting and so much tension, and for me, so much anxiety, and so I'm thankful that you are with me. And that I don't simply wait for you, but I get to wait with you. So God, today as we tell your story and as we sing more of your songs and as we gather at the table, would your presence be uniquely present to us? Would we feel ourselves entered into the communion of you Would we know ourselves to belong to you? And would we find ourselves shaped in the presence of you to become a people of your presence? I thank you that you're with us. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to start with a question that will run throughout the service, but really that's been running throughout all of the services in this season and all of the stories of Advent and the season of Advent itself. And that is this: How do we wait? How do we wait? For Christians, so much of our life is defined by waiting. We believe that God has broken into space and time in the incarnation, that he has begun to inaugurate his kingdom and bring all things to renewal, and yet we believe that it is not finished. We believe that God is moving in the world. We've said in the last series that we're in that God is percolating something in this world, fermenting a new reality, and yet even that statement proves it is not yet totally here, that the world has not been remade, that healing does not reign, that the kingdom is not established, that there are still systems of brokenness and unhealth and hurt and pain. The world has not yet been healed. And so as Christians, we believe that we live in this like waiting period. We wait for what God is going to finish. And it's is true like theologically for us. It is also just true personally. Like, all of us right now are waiting. We're all waiting for the end of a pandemic. Maybe more personally or specifically, we wait for the healing of our own bodies or the healing of someone else's bodies. Or we wait for the healing of addiction or hurts or wounds or trauma. Sometimes we wait for hope. We have some dream about a spouse or a child or some kind of vocational dream, and we're waiting for those things to begin to unfold, for them things to be fulfilled. And even in the day-to-day, we wait for letters or emails or phone calls. We wait for jobs. We wait for relationships to be reconciled. We wait for acceptance. We wait for all these minuscule moments to be done. Waiting is like maybe the most common theme of human life. It's just common. We're all waiting all the time. And the pandemic has brought us into a shared kind of waiting, where we're all waiting for quite literally the same thing. But just because waiting is a similar experience that we all have, how we wait can be different. I think depending upon your personality or depending upon how you're wired or how you're programmed, waiting can look like a whole set of different things. For some of us, I think that waiting produces anxiety. It's like a need to do something with the waiting that we have. It feels wasteful to just sit in it. It feels wasteful to, to just like rest in the waiting. And so for, that's how I am. So for me, the waiting produces like a need to do, a need to achieve, a need to create a list and to accomplish all of the things on the list because that gives me some vague sense of control over the anxiety that I'm feeling. For others, though, I think that waiting kind of produces a heaviness. The unknowability of the world in which we live kind of weighs on us in a way that it's like, I actually can't control that. I can't get anxious about it. And so instead, it begins to shut us down, or we compartmentalize the waiting to some other place. I think you actually see kind of both in COVID. Like at the beginning of COVID, you saw everybody was like, I am going to become the great British baking bake-off champion. And then by the end of it, they were like, I am going to watch everything Netflix has ever made you have both. It's like one moment, it's like the anxiety is going to lead me to be a musician. And then the next, you're like, I'm going to abandon all hopes of doing anything except watching Below Deck. You see both begin to play out, heaviness and anxiety. And I think at some level, that is fine, right? Like we're feeling the exhaustion, the tension, and the conflict of waiting. But what we're, I think, seeing in COVID is really how we wait at like an existential kind of level, a huge level, a lifetime kind of level being revealed because it's so compressed, so tenuous, so driven to this moment. And the question for us as the people of God is, well, how do we wait How do we wait in COVID? How do we wait as it begins to unfold? But even more so, if this is revealing how we wait in like a grand cosmic kind of way, how do we wait as the people of God participating in the story of God? And today in the story of Anna from Luke chapter 2, we encounter a woman who is intimately familiar with waiting. In Luke 2, verse 36, the text says this. It says, There was also a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. There's a few things that the writer Luke wants us to know about Anna. And the first one almost comes in passing, but I think it's worth paying attention to, which is that she came from the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher is a tribe of Israel. It's one of the tribes of Israel. And that's not necessarily that important to know, but there's an important moment in the life of Asher that comes later in their history. If you've read your Old Testament at all, you know that after King David, who's like the big, good, beautiful king of of The Old Testament that everybody's always talking about and always hoping for again. After that comes his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom splits into two. You have a civil war that ruptures in Israel, and the kingdom splits into two. What you have is Judah, which is where this story is taking place, and Israel. And Israel is where Asher is. And Israel goes on a bit of a different journey. Than Judah. They begin to kind of differ from the Torah that was handed to them. They begin to differ and walk away from some of the traditions and histories of their people. And in 722, another large nation conquers Israel, assimilates them into their life, and kind of makes them a different people altogether. This becomes sort of a different community. In fact, if you remember the woman at the well, that's that moment where Jesus interacts with this Samaritan woman. He's interacting with someone from this nation, and she's viewed so differently and treated so differently because of the way this history has unfolded. Well, that's where the people of Asher are. And there's a moment in their story where after they've been conquered, after this like, new assimilation is happening, where they're kind of becoming a different kind of people, walking away from the Torah, walking away from the principles of God, there's this good king of Judah. There's not very many of them. There's a good king of Judah who's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to restore worship, and we're going to invite everybody. We're going to invite all of our friends in this kingdom of Israel that have walked away. We're going to invite everybody in our own kingdom who's walked away. We're going to restore the Passover, and we're going to worship together. And so this king named Hezekiah sends out letters to all of what was the once unified kingdom of Israel. And we get this moment in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 10, where it says this, The couriers went out from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulon, but people scorned and ridiculed them. It's not a well-received party invitation. Nevertheless, some from Asher... Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. I think Luke includes this information in the story of Anna for this reason, to hear this story, because he doesn't say that about Simeon, what tribe he had come from. He doesn't tell us really any other information like that, but he tells us that Anna came from the tribe of Asher, that she comes from a line of people who have waited for the restoration of Israel. She comes from a line of people whose lives have been upended by violence and unbelief and conquest and chaos, and yet in the middle of having their lives and their worlds and their hopes upended, they held on to this promise and this hope of restoration. That She comes from a people who have waited, who have waited long and who have waited defiantly. This is the first thing that is important for us to know about what it means to be a Christian who waits. Waiting for God's people is an act of defiance. It is an act of protest against the stories and the myths of the world around us. For Asher, they are choosing to defy the scorn, the shame, and the disbelief of the country around them. It literally says in the text that the messengers were scorned and ridiculed. And so in the midst of that shame, in the midst of that unbelief, in the midst of that criticism, Asher chooses instead to hold out hope and to defiantly wait for what it is that God is doing. They deny the myths and the stories of their culture that have replaced God's story. And as waiting is an act of defiance for the people of Asher, the same is true for us, that waiting in our own Life is an act of defiance. It's a choice to defy the stories and the myths, the narratives, the shame that are so pervasive in the world around us. For me, that's the narrative of control. To wait is to defy the myth that I can manage anxiety through control, that I can find certainty in the midst of uncertainty through my own strength or my own ability or my own will to control or my own ability to predict the outcomes or how much education I have or how much money I have in the bank, that I can somehow wrest certainty out of the hands of uncertainty through my own ability. That's the myth that waiting has to defy. Waiting is a defiance of that narrative. But it is so difficult to defy that narrative because in my own life, what happens is if I try to defy that narrative, well, then what it tends to do is it begins to expose me to something begins to expose me to my own sense of vulnerability and my own sense of dependence. Why else am I trying to defy the narrative of control unless I actually can't control something? Why else am I trying to defy the myth of certainty through power unless I can't find certainty through my own power? And if I admit that to myself and if I begin to own that truth and if I begin to own that reality, well, then I have to face the facts that I am so much more vulnerable and dependent than I ever believed. man, then that is a terrifying thing to admit to myself. It is terrifying for me to own that I am vulnerable. It is terrifying to own that I am dependent. My inclination, as opposed to going to dependence and vulnerability, is I would actually prefer to go either from certainty and control, maybe if that doesn't work, then I would prefer to go over to like cynicism, like the story that there's nothing worth waiting for. That's my other protection mechanism. The first one is I can do anything, and the second one is nobody can do anything at all. And there's nothing worth waiting for, and there's nothing worth hoping for, and the whole thing is just gonna die. So who cares at all? The cynicism is a protection mechanism. Protects me again from the reality that I am so much more vulnerable than I want to admit. And here's the thing about Anna that is so fascinating. She could have gone there. She comes from a people who have been waiting so long that it feels like, to me, the most natural response would be cynicism and bitterness. You have waited for hundreds of years. Your people have been conquered again and again. They were ridiculed and scorned for holding out faith and hope, and that faith has been delayed over and over again. Why are you not bitter? But then it says, as you look at her actual personal life, it says she was very old in verse 37. She lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. So not only is her history marked by waiting, but her own personal story is enveloped in the grief of waiting. And again, that could lead to bitterness or to cynicism or to apathy or at the very least a story of control and a myth of management. But instead, Anna chooses a life of dependence. It's fascinating that she doesn't get married again. I hadn't noticed that until Heather pointed it out to me. She doesn't get married again. And the cultural narrative is that you would have, that that's the right, appropriate thing to do. I think even in our own culture, the right, normal, like smart thing to do would be, oh, just get married again, have someone to take care of you, someone to share life with, and she doesn't. And getting married again isn't wrong. There's nothing wrong with that at all, but she chooses not to. And she chooses not to work or not to like seize control. Instead, it says that she spends night and day fasting and praying, Those are all choices of such dependence, such vulnerability, especially in the first century world. Those are defiant practices. And they are deeply trusting practices. And as waiting is the practice of defiance, waiting is also for us the practice of trust. It's defined as we just saw, because she rejects attempts at control or security. Like her ancestor, she scorns the shame of her culture because, like her ancestors, she trusts the story of God. She trusts that God is with her and for her, that God was breaking into the world to rescue and redeem her. Now, again... That's a beautiful story, but it is also a terrifying thing to trust in. Terrifying because it means laying down the things that make us feel in control, and that means owning our vulnerability and dependence and being exposed. This is exactly what happens to Asher and Anna. They trust that God is who God says God is, and it exposes them to ridicule. And the text doesn't say this, but I imagine it's happening in their own lives that as they are exposed to ridicule, they are also exposed to themselves, and that can be even worse than being exposed to the world around us. Because the narratives that we are working hard to defy from outside of us so quickly slip into us and begin to shape the way we talk about ourselves and see ourselves and understand ourselves. We've probably known this and you've probably experienced this, like you try to choose trust and vulnerability and dependence like Anna and very quickly the narrative that you begin to tell yourself is that you are weak. Or the narrative that I go to quickest, I don't know why, but the narrative that I go to quickest is when I start to feel vulnerable and dependent is that I don't belong. And these are all signs that I am alienated and disconnected from the people around me. And that narrative begins to shape me. And instead of pressing further into trust or pressing further into dependence, what it makes me want to do is try to seize control again. To say, oh, I will make myself belong or I'll bail, but I will be in charge and I'll fix this issue. How easy would it have been for Anna or Asher to feel that way? To choose a narrative that is so different than the one around you, to refuse to get married, to continue to worship night and day in the temple, or to be the people of Asher and to enter back into relationship with your arch nemesis Judah to hope for the restoration of the temple. Everyone around you would say, that doesn't make sense. You would so quickly begin to feel like, I don't belong here. But instead of choosing to seize control, a fast, prays, and worships in the temple. Fasting, praying, and being in the temple, these are practices and a place of God's presence. These are the ways and the place that God's people open themselves up to God's presence. These are ways in which we open ourselves to God's presence, places in which we connect to God's presence. And this is the next thing that Anna shows us about waiting, is that it is an invitation into presence. As we pray, we are present to God and we enter into relationship with the triune God. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 15 through 16 and 26, writing, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you that you are adopted as God's children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, the same Spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. In the same way, the Spirit comes to our help and weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit pleads our case with unexpressed groans. This passage is fascinating in light of this moment with Anna because it is about waiting. Romans 8 is a passage, of, a passage about how the whole world waits, how it groans for God to finish what God is up to, that it longs for the completion of all things, and it names that it's difficult and that it is painful and it feels like groaning, and yet in the midst of the waiting, we are invited into the very center of God, where the Spirit confirms in us that we are known, that we are loved, and that we belong. A few weeks ago, um, I was feeling just like the stress of uncertainty, like this, this feeling that we've been talking about and this like pressure that we've been talking about was just very real uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I, I don't know exactly what was causing it, but it was heavy. And I got home and I think it was from a Sunday service. So I got home from Sunday, I, like sat on the couch, I was irritated, hangry for sure, And just like probably a a bit of a nuisance to be around generally. And as I sat down, my wife, Tori, she came and she sat next to me and she just hugged me and something just broke in me and I just began to cry. And I won't tell you for how long because that might make me embarrassed, but for so long and then I fell asleep and then I got sick. That was the journey that I was on. I was so tired, and I think, even though I don't know all the sources that were contributing to it, I think it's because I had reached the end of my ability to try to control uncertainty. And nothing was left in me except the vulnerability and the dependence that I was working so hard to try to hide behind my control, behind my sense of certainty, behind my actions. And it was too much, like it was just too much. I had nothing left to give except emptiness, and that felt like it was too costly. And in that moment, as I was wrestling through that, even though I wasn't able to name it, Tori offered me presents. She was just there. She was with me, she saw me, and she gave me a place to belong. And that is actually the thing that I needed. This is what Anna does in the temple. It seems so wasteful on the surface of it to spend her life, so many years of her life, every day, worshiping, praying, fasting in the temple. But she knows that in her trust and in her defiance and in the vulnerability that she is exposing to herself and the world, the thing she needs most is presence. She needs to be invited into the community of God where the Spirit says, you belong here. And as that happens and as she is brought into the presence of God and as we are brought into the presence of God, something else begins to happen in that space. We are caught up in the thing that God is doing in the world. As we experience God's presence, we're actually beginning to experience God's work, which is God's presence being restored into the world around us. And as we experience God's presence, we become participants in God's presence. So what Paul says in the middle of those two moments I read to you from Romans 8, in verse 22 and 25, he says this, we know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering the labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation, we ourselves who have the spirit as the first crop of the harvest also grown inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope and we wait for it with patience. It so as all of creation groans and waits and we as Christians, we groan and we wait With it, but there is something different for us. We have the spirit, the first crop, and that means that our waiting is different. I think there's two maybe images that we could use to talk about waiting. The first, uh, I think, is how we normally approach waiting, and that's like waiting at a bus stop or a bus station or an airport. If you've been here for a while, you know that I just hate airports. Waiting at airports to me feels like an image of anxiety just come to life. If you check your phone, this is me. I check my phone like every 13 seconds. I go and read the weird flashing boards like as though if I knew what was happening, I could control when the plane lands. But nobody can control that. It's witchcraft. But when you're waiting in an airport or you're waiting at a bus stop, you are waiting to go somewhere. You're waiting to get somewhere. You're waiting to to get on a bus or on a plane or on a train to arrive at some other destination. It kind of feels like the only thing that you can do is wait. And it feels wasteful. And like you're just twiddling your thumbs as you wait for the bus to arrive. But then there is another image of waiting. One where you are already at the destination. When you have already arrived and you are waiting for everyone else to catch up. It's like the night before a wedding or, to use Paul's illustration, the moments before a birth. That kind of waiting is different. It's expectant. It's participatory. Because the Spirit is in us, our waiting is different. We don't wait for some... Bus to take us to some destination. You no, know, we actually wait at the destination and long for the world to catch up. This is so true of Anna. She's already there when Jesus arrives. She is waiting in the temple where Jesus will be. She was already there. She saw what so few did she has been waiting for so long and she longs for the world to catch up with her this is the final thing about waiting is that waiting for the people of god it is the enactment of faith it's the enactment the action the living out the making real and tangible and possible what it is god is doing Because we are caught up in God's presence and work, because our relationship, our adoption, our communion with God is being confirmed, waiting for us is living out God's reality here and now. My friend and professor David Fitch says it this way, and I think it's just a beautiful quote, waiting is cooperating with God where God is already present. It's living where the rest of the world is already headed they just don't know it yet. Waiting isn't wasting time. It is confirming God's world here. It's not twiddling your thumb. It's not waiting for some bus to arrive. It is at the destination, calling and inviting the rest of the world to join you where God is headed. To be the church is to be the people of God's future, here and now. It's what it means to be us. And what if that was true of us, Missio? That we were a people of God's future, but right here. That we were the ones who lived out the reality of God in the here and now. I think the truth is is it would expose us. That's what we see in Anna. That's what we see in Asher. There is so much vulnerability and dependence in that moment. It would expose us, and yet it would also invite us into the communion of the living God. And in the communion of the living God, we would begin to invite the world into the same. And that is exactly what our world so desperately needs. It's the work of Advent. Jesus inviting the world into the communion of the living God, lived out here and now. So, Missy, as you leave this place and as you continue to worship and move into the week and finish celebrating Advent, how can you wait in the presence of God How can you wait in the presence of God so that you might begin to live out God's reality here and now? Where can you choose dependence and vulnerability and defiance to the narratives of the world around you? One of the easiest places for us to do this is the practice of the table. Because there's a moment every week where we bring our groaning and our waiting and our hopes and our insufficiencies and our vulnerability. We bring them all into this space where God promises to be present to us. And it's at that table that we're told we have a place to belong, that we are welcome, that we have a seat. So our hearts and our sonship and our daughtership and our adoption is confirmed affirmed, and at the same moment, it is the place where we enact God's future. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. So, Messiah, let me pray for us. And somewhere near you, you should have like a little cup or a little thing of communion. And she leads us into worship further. Would you enter into that table space, the practice of bringing the groanings, the longings, into the presence of God, where we can enact God's future here and now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are with us. And that in being with us, you have made it possible for us to enter into the living God, where in the presence of you and the confirmation of your spirit and the love of the creator, we are known, we are seen, we are given space to belong. Would this truth and this reality, would it work itself into our bones like Anna? Would that defy the narratives of the world around us so that vulnerability seems less terrifying than actually hiding anymore because we are so known and kept in you? And God, as that is true, would we enact it in the world around us so that the world also sees it to be true, that you are safe, that you are good, and that you are inviting all of us into you. Go we pray these things in your name. Amen. Messiah, we invite you to continue worshiping.